Content warning. The following episode discusses mature themes, including graphic details of murder, illicit drug use, child sex abuse, and domestic violence. Listener discretion is advised. On September 6, 2018, off-duty Dallas, Texas police officer Amber Geiger walked to the apartment of her upstairs neighbor, 26-year-old accountant, Botham John. John was on his couch, relaxing, eating a bowl of ice cream, minding his own business in his own home. Geiger went into John's apartment through the door with the broken latch and shot him in the chest, killing him. She would later say that she made the mistake of thinking Botham John's apartment was her own and gunned him down, thinking he was an intruder. Despite the police dragging their feet on charges against Geiger, eventually she was charged with murder and a trial was held. During the trial, it was revealed that the items on the floors and the red carpet at Jean's door should have clearly indicated to Geiger that she was on the wrong floor and rendered her story that she was tired and mistook Jean's floor for her own, questionable at best. Furthermore, Geiger admitted that her intent was to kill. Upon making what she claimed to be a mistake, her first response was not to call 911 or render aid. She texted her boyfriend, who was also on the police force. On October 1st of this year, Amber Geiger was convicted of murder but only received 10 years in prison, possibility of parole in five for taking the life of innocent victim Botham John. Sure, it wasn't the minimum of five years, but let's be honest, in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't much when the max was life. When it comes to an immense tragedy like this, Family members will process their grief in different ways. The Jean family was a clear illustration of this. The most publicized reaction came from Botham's brother, Brandt. He asked the judge if he could hug Amber Geiger and did so, saying that he forgave her for killing his brother. This was the reaction that was publicized the most on mainstream media, shared on social media, and lauded by many Christians conservative and progressive, white and black, about the power of forgiveness. But despite the attention given to Brandt's reaction, which of course is a valid expression of grief, this was not the only reaction from members of the Jean family. Bertram John, Botham's father, said that he forgave his son's killer, but wanted a stiffer sentence. And Botham's mother, Alison Jean, had this to say after the sentence was handed down. September 6, 2018 changed my life, changed my family's life, changed my country, changed my church. And I know that there are many people who stood with me and my family throughout this tumultuous journey. Yesterday, we saw the conviction of Amber Geiger and today, we heard the sentence of 10 years in prison. That 10 years in prison is 10 years for her reflection and for her to change her life. But there is much more to be done. 
by the city of Dallas. The corruption that we saw during this process must stop. And it must stop for you. Because after now, I leave Dallas, but you live in Dallas. And it must stop for everyone. The contamination of a crime scene that we saw coming out of this case is one that must never happen again. The poor training or the poor use of what should have been training is what we see coming out of this case. That should never, ever happen again. And if this was applied in the way that it ought to have been taught, my son would have been alive today. If Amber Geiger was trained not to shoot in the heart, my son would be standing here today. He was no threat to her. He had no reason to pose a threat to her because he was in his own apartment, in his sanctuary, in the place in which he paid a lot of money to be in. He paid rent to be there. He had every right to be there in whatever state he was in. Yet still, out his, his, his privacy was violated. She intruded on him, and that was not enough. She killed him. Cold-blooded. Cold-blooded. Our life must move on, but our life must move on with change. There's got to be a better day, and that better day starts with each and every one of us. The city of Dallas needs to clean up inside. Amen. The Dallas Police Department has a lot of laundry to do. The Texas Rangers need to know who's on board. And every single one of you, citizens of Dallas and residents of Dallas, need to know what to do to get your city right. That's right. Thank you. The heartfelt words of Botham John's mother highlight the lack of justice in this situation and the persistent state of injustice for the residents of Dallas. The fact was that initially, John's home was searched, which would make sense because it was the crime scene, but no search was done of the suspect Amber Geiger's residence at the time, making it easier for her to potentially dispose of any evidence pointing to possible intent. It also meant that much was made in the mainstream media of the small amount of cannabis found in Jean's apartment, and some on social media latched onto that irrelevant finding to diminish Jean's character, which was, by all accounts, impeccable. During the trial, Geiger's hair was fixed by a black female guard, which is not typical to see during a trial, and made Geiger seem more special than the accused killer she was. And while I do not judge or fault Rant John for hugging his brother's convicted killer, I do fault the judge 
for also hugging the convict. Amber Geiger, even in conviction, was given the kind of privilege the rest of us would not even dream of having, should we be, God forbid, in the same situation. While some would argue that some people are tainting this beautiful display of forgiveness and making everything political, or this is some excuse to protest, as if protests are fun. Go to one sometime. The fact is that one person's politics is another person's real life. Focusing on the forgiveness while conveniently sweeping the injustice under the rug only enables the persistent state of American injustice. And these two different standards of right and wrong, proper and improper, for cop and citizen, for black and white, were on display in the case of convicted killer Amber Geiger, but have their roots deep in our nation's history. And one of these places where we can find these roots is in the drug war that has lasted for over 80 years. I am your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstirer Podcast. left off in part one, Harry Anslinger, the head of the Bureau of Narcotics, which is the precursor to the Drug Enforcement Agency, or DEA, had achieved a victory that was hard fought. Seeking to find new purpose for his career after the end of Prohibition, he had pushed very hard for the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937, which essentially outlawed cannabis by using the Department of Treasury's tax powers. Anslinger waged a concerted propaganda campaign along with a complicit press, cultivating racialized fears of people being high on this exotic drug, marijuana, that was popular among Mexican immigrants and black people and leading them to rape, maim, and kill. And he was able to get his law passed by Congress and signed into law by President Franklin D. Roosevelt. And with that, not only was marijuana outlawed, but Anslinger's Bureau of Narcotics, also involved in the regulation of other drugs, including opiates and cocaine, was injected with additional funding and political muscle, and Anslinger himself became America's first drug czar. I'll be using a number of sources for this episode, but the main source I will be using is a book called Chasing the Scream by Johan Hari. The book has a lot of great information, pulling from government records, the personal papers of some of the main players involved, and interviews with people who had a front row seat to this time period, still alive at the time the book was being researched. I definitely recommend it. With Harry Anslinger's Bureau of Narcotics receiving a healthy injection of government funding, no pun intended, and with the backing of both government officials and the press, the drug czar set to work, with the goal of eradicating mind-altering substances from society completely. The Marijuana Tax Act of 1937 gave him an outsized voice in government and society, and a lot of money to work with. But cannabis wasn't Anslinger's only enemy. You see, way back in 1914, the Harrison Narcotics Tax Act was passed, which outlawed cocaine and opiates such as heroin. But it was rarely enforced in its early years because of the federal government's focus on alcohol during Prohibition. The Bureau of Narcotics was founded in 1930 with the purpose of enforcing the Harrison Act, and Anslinger became its first commissioner. But 
prohibition meant few resources to tackling any substances other than alcohol. But after prohibition was repealed with the 21st Amendment in 1933, the apparatus built up to enforce prohibition still existed. Harry Anslinger was able to take advantage of these resources, including surveillance, to set them on eradicating illicit substances, not only cannabis, but also narcotics and opiates. Up until the Harrison Act, narcotics and opiates had widespread recreational use among all classes of Americans, much like caffeine today. The vast majority of users, including three-quarters of self-described addicts, were functional, meaning they were able to hold jobs and live relatively normal lives, and few were what we picture to be junkies today, homeless, unable to maintain stable lives, stealing from family and friends, turning to street crime. As a matter of fact, some members of the temperance movement, the movement in favor of making alcohol illegal that pushed for prohibition, were opiate users. And it was not seen as a double standard or hypocritical because at this point in time, these drugs were considered more acceptable socially than alcohol. Imagine that. But the Harrison Act, and especially the enforcement of the act with the beefed-up muscle of the Post-Prohibition Bureau of Narcotics, changed all that. With these drugs now being illegal, Hari points out that it led to two types of crime waves. The first was that with narcotics and opiates no longer available through legal channels, these could only be obtained through extra-legal sources, such as underground drug syndicates, street gangs, and the mob. Because of the limited availability of these drugs and a huge customer base used to obtaining these drugs that could no longer access them easily, the cost of the drugs on the street was a lot higher than they ever were through legit sources. Because of the substantially higher cost of the drugs many Americans were accustomed to, a lot of them turned to street crime in order to make the amount of money needed to continue their drug use, generally through theft or sex work. And if you notice, these patterns are similar to what happens now due to the war on drugs, though we'll get more into the drug war today later in the series. Now, much like the fight against cannabis, Anslinger focused on demonizing those who used opiates and narcotics as scum who did not deserve to be treated for their ailments or to be given the opportunity to be weaned off addictive substances in a humane way. Keep in mind that while the use of these substances was considered a normal part of American life until the Harrison Act, withdrawal from them, especially from opiates, is a dangerous, even deadly process if not done in a professional setting. And the increase in criminality due to the drug laws and their enforcement was essentially an endless feedback loop. The criminality the drug laws created became fodder for Anslinger to claim that the drugs themselves led to criminal behavior. Predictably, given Harry Anslinger's racial biases discussed in the last episode, if you haven't listened to the last episode, make sure you check that out, the Bureau of Narcotics used all of its resources to infiltrate communities targeted by these anti-drug policies, Black, Latino, and Chinese immigrant communities. These were all groups that many white Americans mistrusted and othered, and it was easy for Anslinger to make the case that drugs made these groups forget their place. While Anslinger was loath to hire Black agents, he found that white agents were unable to gain the trust of those he was targeting. So because of that, he did reluctantly recruit a few, 
who were given surveillance powers, but little else, to infiltrate the jazz scene in places where black people frequented and to turn in their fellow black brothers and sisters to a white man who hated them due to the color of their skin. And as I've touched on on other episodes, these types of people, those who have harmed their own communities to earn the oppressor's favor, have always existed. So this detail is unfortunately not surprising. Harry Anslinger had immense reach, but you might be surprised how far his reach went and how influential he actually was. Sure, he concerned himself with jailing and ruining the lives of people of color, as well as anyone who got in his way, over his anti-drug crusade, which we'll get into in a moment. But there came a point where he figured out that the drug trade wasn't just stateside, it was global, and Anslinger decided to truly embody his drug czar role. He was going to be the drug czar not only for the U.S., but for the whole world. Now, while the U.S. was wrapped in anti-drug fervor, the rest of the globe saw things differently. Differences in societal customs and the existence of long-standing traditions meant that the U.S. was unique in its dedication to eradicating mind-altering substances. But by the 1950s, Anslinger had an answer to that as well. At this point in time, World War II had ended and the Allies had beaten Nazi Germany and the rest of the Axis powers. And out of that, the U.S. and the Soviet Union became the two superpowers. Their ideological differences and self-interest led to the Cold War, the period of hostilities between the two countries. The Cold War pit the capitalism of the United States against the communism of the Soviet Union. And so, given this backdrop, Anslinger battled drugs on two fronts. Stateside, he used his gift of speaking to the fears of the American people to expand the focus of the drug war from black people and Mexican immigrants to the threat of communism. Anslinger's timing was fortuitous because it dovetailed with the increased focus of elected officials in Congress on the threat to the American way of life from the communist threat. Anslinger began to spread a conspiracy theory that communists were orchestrating a flood of heroin into the U.S. In particular, that China was sending over heroin for white Americans to become addicted to so that they would become so desperate for their supply of drugs that they would commit treason in order to obtain their next fix. Anslinger felt that because his laws were being implemented, this should eliminate drugs from the reach of Americans. But that wasn't happening. The U.S. was not a clean, drug-free utopia, so he felt like his drug war was failing. By blaming the failing drug war on communists, especially from China, he could demonize both Chinese immigrants and drug users and could tar them as secret communists and potential traitors. Even a number of bureau agents would approach him concerned about spreading this rumor without any intelligence or other information to substantiate it. The fact was, the real source of heroin was coming from inside the house. The Bureau of Narcotics itself was, in fact, the main weak link that allowed the flow of heroin to persist due to widespread corruption within the organization that Anslinger had not addressed. Whether it was due to tunnel vision or just willfully ignoring the issue, that part isn't clear. But in any case, even when confronted with the fact that his theory didn't hold water, Anslinger didn't care if his pink Okami fever dream was true or not, and neither did members of Congress, 
who gave him the green light to spread his message abroad. So Anslinger traveled overseas to Geneva, Switzerland, spending time with countries that were part of the United Nations. He and his agents worked on convincing countries all over the world to enact similar drug bans using all the weapons in his arsenal, including extolling the benefits to countries that enacting drug laws could give them a tool to suppress their own political minority groups, much like what the U.S. had done with Black and Latino people. He would use his unsubstantiated, dubious junk science and anecdotes about the horrors of drug use. And when these familiar tools didn't work, he and his agents would simply threaten to have aid cut off to these countries. And this was a credible threat, both because of the sway Anslinger had in U.S. government and because the U.S. was one of the major superpowers. And one by one, nations including the U.K., Thailand, and many others capitulated. So if you ever wonder why so many countries around the planet have their own drug restrictions, some of which are extremely harsh, look no further than the OG drug czar himself, Harry Anslinger. But as I mentioned earlier, Harry Anslinger was not without his enemies. While law and order was gaining traction and popularity as the way to respond to illicit drug use, there were others who felt differently. Around the U.S., there were doctors and scientists who felt that substance users should be given treatment, which generally consisted of either controlled withdrawal or by prescribing drugs legally. You see, the Harrison Act made narcotics and opiates illegal, but similarly to the 18th Amendment that ushered in prohibition, the Harrison Act had a loophole. Doctors were legally able to prescribe these drugs to their patients. This loophole was upheld by a 1925 U.S. Supreme Court decision, Linder v. United States. Due to this loophole, clinics existed around the country that would dispense prescriptions for otherwise illicit drugs to people who regularly used them, including those who were dependent on their use. And this was shown to be helpful to both the drug users and the communities in which the clinics were located. For example, a Los Angeles physician Dr. Edward Williams ran a free clinic in the early 1930s where he dispensed prescriptions for drugs that were classed as illicit. Relying on the physician loophole in the 1914 Harrison Act and the 1925 Linder ruling for cover, the effects were startling. Many patients had been unemployed and were struggling prior to using the services of the clinic, but over time were steadily getting their lives together, working and supporting themselves and their families. Surrounding neighborhoods also saw improvements. As Hari notes, quote, The mayor of Los Angeles came out and celebrated the clinic as a great gift to the city, and the local federal prosecutor announced that these clinics accomplished more good in one day than all the prosecutions in one month. End quote. But as Harry Anslinger rose to power, he began to target those clinics. He viewed the doctors running these clinics as drug peddlers. While legal precedent was not on his side, he didn't care. He saw himself as the law and pointed out that the U.S. Supreme Court did not have a force of its own to enforce its rulings. Around 20,000 physicians were charged with violating the Harrison Act, and 95% were convicted. Most were charged huge fines, but some convicted doctors 
were sentenced to five years in prison for each prescription written. And one of the drug czar's biggest targets was Edward Williams. He targeted Dr. Williams specifically, not only because he was one of the many doctors running these clinics, but because he was well-respected for the results he had achieved. He felt that if he could ruin his reputation and livelihood, this would silence any remaining dissent among the medical profession. At one point during the open case against Edward Williams, Henry Smith Williams, Edward's brother and also a doctor, traveled to Washington, D.C. to visit Harry Anslinger, and he confronted him in person. Harry pleaded with Anslinger for his brother's life and reputation. Faced with an actual confrontation with a family member of a man targeted by his actions, Anslinger didn't have the guts to own his policies or even to admit he was targeting Edward Williams at all. Instead, he threw his local agent under the bus and said he couldn't understand why Edward was being attacked. But once Edward's brother left, Anslinger laughed off the encounter, saying Henry was suffering from hysteria. It was easy for Anslinger to go after these nameless, faceless people, but when things got real, he was too much of a coward to own it. But Anslinger's face-to-face -face cowardice didn't stop him from continuing his attacks. Dr. Edward Williams was found guilty of violating the Harrison Act and sentenced to a year of federal probation. It also meant a loss of his medical license so he could no longer operate the clinic. Dr. Henry Smith Williams, for his part, had been more hardline on illicit drugs prior to his brother's targeting by Anslinger. After this ordeal, in 1938, he wrote a book called Drug Addicts Are Human Beings. In it, he argued that Anslinger's drug war was being waged because he was being paid off by the mob. While there is evidence that there were agents that had mafia connections and the mob did benefit from the drug war, as a byproduct of Anslinger's policies like I discussed earlier, there does not seem to be much in the way of evidence that Anslinger himself was waging his war on drugs due to mob connections. From researching for the series, I'm inclined to believe that Anslinger was driven by his ego, his need to keep himself in his government department, his baby, relevant, and his virulent racism. In any case, despite his devotion in the book to the spurious conspiracy theory, Henry Smith Williams strongly argued in favor of a more treatment-focused approach to illicit drug use, which could have been a strong counter-narrative to Anslinger's scorched-earth approach. Dr. Williams also made a very salient prediction that in 50 years' time, the drug trafficking industry would reach upwards of $5 billion. He was right, and he was even close on the year. Henry Smith Williams would only live another five years after his book was published. He spent his golden years campaigning to end the drug war. But when others expressed interest in working with him, Harry Anslinger's agents would write them, slandering Williams' group as a criminal organization in trouble with Uncle Sam. This was the Bureau's M.O. when it came to any voices of dissent coming from the medical and scientific communities, so they couldn't gain any traction. Free speech be damned. So the campaign never got off the ground. Henry Smith Williams died in 1943. His book, as a stand against Anslinger's narrative, went out of print and was largely forgotten, as were the effects in the early years of the drug czar's reign 
to offer an alternative that would treat drug users as human beings worthy of dignity and respect. Let's lighten things up for just a second and get into the mood for October month. October is now here and there's some spooky stuff on tap. Nick and John start off October month by talking about voodoo. Many of us unfamiliar with voodoo associate it with dark arts, voodoo dolls, zombies, and Halloween. But are those associations accurate? This is a great episode, as always. Very fascinating. I loved listening to it, so I highly recommend it for you. Check out Stranger Still on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast player, or go to strangerstillshow.com. And for all the superb podcasts of Flying Machine, go to flyingmachine.network slash shows. When I said that drug czar Harry Anslinger was a racist, I don't mean just in the ways we might define racism today, but racist in a Ty Cobb sort of way. If you don't know, Ty Cobb was a baseball player in the early 20th century. He played for the Detroit Tigers, and in a time where more subtle forms of racism were more accepted across the board and not frowned upon in quite the same way it is today, Ty Cobb had the reputation at the time of being a racist, primarily for his use of hard R in words and fighting black people, including choking out a black woman just because. Harry Anslinger wasn't physically fighting black people like Ty Cobb. Like I mentioned earlier, he was a coward at heart. But like Cobb, he was known for being racist during a time when the threshold for a white person being seen as one was extremely high. Anslinger's propaganda and quotes regarding the drug war often included worries that drugs would lead to interracial relations and miscegenation, race mixing, and that drugs kept people of color, particularly Black Americans, from being docile and knowing their place. Harry writes, quote, Of course, everyone spoke about race differently in the 1930s, but the intensity of Harry's views shocked people even then, and when it was revealed, he'd referred to a suspect in an official memo as a n***. Senator Joseph P. Guffey of Anslinger's home state of Pennsylvania demanded his resignation. Later, when one of his very few black agents, William B. Davis, complained about being called a n***** by Harry's men, Anslinger sacked him. End quote. This is who was running the drug war. And probably the best illustration of how his racism was Part of what dictated the direction of the drug war is his treatment of two famous women performers during this time period, Judy Garland and Billie Holiday. To many of us, Judy Garland is best known for playing the main character, a young girl named Dorothy, in the 1939 classic, The Wizard of Oz. But Garland had a long career primarily as a singer, as well as as an actress during her teen and adult years. From 1935 through 1950, Judy Garland was under contract with MGM to act in films. During this era in American cinema, actors
actors would be under exclusive contract to work with a specific studio for a set number of years, for a set number of films per year. She had been signed and cast for girl next door roles, as opposed to the more mature, sexualized roles of some of her contemporaries, like Elizabeth Taylor and Lana Turner. This posed a problem as Garland grew from a teen to a young adult throughout the late 1930s into the 1940s. As the studio wanted her to lose weight for roles, yet keep her alert on long shoot days while starving. This led her to begin taking amphetamines, which would give her extra pep and energy and enable weight loss and barbiturates to bring her down at night. This was the start of Judy Garland's drug use. By the late 1940s, Garland had added alcohol and morphine pills to her drugs of choice. The morphine, which is an opiate, was illegally obtained. And in 1947, this led Judy Garland to cross paths with drug czar Harry Anslinger. Anslinger was said not to be starstruck, but Judy Garland was very famous as a white actress and singer. The racial detail is going to matter. And she had a girl next door persona, especially during a time period where Hollywood secrets weren't easily leaked, with very wealthy, powerful people having invested a lot in her. Anslinger knew, through his agency's surveillance, what drugs Garland was taking. But instead of hauling her off to jail, locking her up and throwing away the key, Anslinger visited MGM executives and pushed for her to be sent to a sanatorium. A sanatorium was essentially a hospital or inpatient clinic that would hold patients to quarantine and treat them for chronic illness. In this context, this would have been an early form of drug treatment. While the movie execs were at first reluctant to allow Garland to be sent to a sanatorium, they wanted to keep pumping her with drugs so she could continue filming, she attempted suicide, which caused them to relent and go along with Anslinger's suggestion. From all accounts I was able to find, this was the last encounter Judy Garland had with Harry Anslinger or the Bureau of Narcotics. She continued her drug use until dying of an accidental overdose in 1969. Yet, Harry Anslinger had a different famous singer in his sights. Unlike Judy Garland, he and his bureau would dog this talented, iconic songstress all the way to her grave. His real focus, his number one prize? Lady Day herself, Billie Holiday. Born Eleonora Fagan, Billie Holiday had an extremely difficult upbringing, being born of teen parents in Baltimore, Maryland, and having spent her formative years living in the slums of Baltimore's Pigtown. As a child, she was cared for by others, while her father, a jazz musician, left the family, and her mother took jobs that required absences from home to make ends meet. As a preteen, she was raped and then sent to reform school. And then at 14, after moving to New York City to live with her mother, she was forced into sex trafficking. Not long after, she would have an abusive pimp, Louis McKay. Billy's mother, who by this time had also become a sex worker, suggested that she should marry her pimp. While they wouldn't get married until over a couple of decades later, Lewis would be a presence throughout her life. It was while living as a child sex worker 
that she first started drinking alcohol and taking heroin. She started medicating herself to drown out her nightmares and flashbacks from her many traumas, which today we would likely call post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. But it was also at this point that she started singing. Holiday's career began in Harlem cabarets and she made her recording debut in 1933 at the age of 18. Despite being a black musical artist in segregated America, her mainstream popularity soared. Then in 1939, Billie Holiday began to sing a song that was met by a lot of controversy in its time, but it's a song she's most well known for even to this day. The song originally started out as a poem written by Jewish American songwriter Abel Mirapol about the lynching of black men in the South. It was eventually presented to Holiday by a nightclub owner in Greenwich Village. Strange Fruit evoked a great deal of emotion in Billy. Her father, Clarence Holiday, had served during the First World War and was exposed to mustard gas. This had an effect on his health. Two years before his daughter Billy would sing this iconic song, Clarence would get sick while on tour with his jazz band, but the local hospital would not admit him because they refused to treat black people. He had to be taken to a VA hospital further away and was checked into the segregated blacks-only ward there. But too much time had passed and he developed pneumonia. Since this was before the widespread availability of antibiotics, this was a death sentence. The fact that Clarence Holliday served his country, sacrificed his health, a country that treated him as inferior and he died because of it, is infuriating to think about. But that was the reality. And this reality was what Billie Holiday felt and tapped into when she sang Strange Fruit. During a time when most songs were about some aspect of love, falling in love, being loved, heartbreak, protest songs were almost unheard of, and these especially weren't expected out of the mouth of a black woman. This would be Billie Holiday's closer. Strange Fruit was difficult for her to get recorded, but once it did, it became highly regarded, eventually selling a million copies and becoming her best-selling record. While she was not the first to sing the song, and there have been many other covers since, Strange Fruit is thoroughly identified with Billie Holiday. But while it made such a huge impact, the song was also met with criticism and anger. Some of her audiences expressed outrage at the song. Government authorities did not want her to sing the song, but she continued to sing it as a staple in her performances from that point on, and her insistence on singing Strange Fruit also got her on the radar of Harry Anslinger. Anslinger hated jazz music with a passion, and for years he had been targeting the jazz scene, but had been largely unsuccessful in gaining drug convictions because of the refusal of most jazz musicians and their entourages to cooperate and roll on each other. But Anslinger really wanted to get Billie Holiday. She was growing in popularity and critical acclaim after Strange Fruit, to the point of performing at Carnegie Hall, 
And she wasn't willing to stay in her place. She had the reputation of standing up for herself against racist attacks, which put her at odds with bands that she had been a part of during her career. And she refused to stop singing Strange Fruit, a song of protest, a song that raised awareness of the horrors of black existence in America. Harry Anslinger wanted her to stop singing that song. And of course, through his surveillance, he knew that heroin was Billie Holiday's drug of choice. Anslinger used a black agent, Jimmy Fletcher, to gain evidence on Holiday. And then in the late 1940s, once she finally left her pimp-turned-manager and husband, Louis McKay, who had abused her and stolen much of the fortune she made from her singing career, he took revenge by going to Washington, D.C. and cooperating with Anslinger. This led to Billie Holiday getting raided and being charged with drug crimes. During her trial in 1947, she had asked the judge, begged the judge, to be sent to a hospital to dry out much like Anslinger had suggested for Judy Garland. Instead, Holiday was convicted of heroin possession and sentenced to a year in prison. When released, the federal government refused to reinstate her cabaret license, which meant that she was unable to perform at the majority of venues around the country. While over the next decade, she was able to find some places to perform here and there, including a return to Carnegie Hall, her career was being snatched away from her. During this time, Billie Holiday had resumed taking heroin. Years of drug and alcohol abuse, having medicated herself to cope with an extremely hard life full of struggle, magnified by oppression, had taken their toll. In June of 1959, Holiday was admitted to Metropolitan Hospital in New York, dealing with addiction as well as heart disease and cirrhosis of the liver. She was being treated with methadone to wean her off the heroin, and the doctors were doing their best to treat her. Well-wishers came by and brought gifts, and not-so-well-wishers showed up as well. Louis McKay came to her bedside and read scripture to her, then tried to get her to sign over to him the rights to her autobiography. She pretended to be asleep as to not deal with him, as she was acutely aware of his nefarious intentions. He already stole her money. Her autobiography was the last thing she owned. And, like sharks striking at the smell of blood, the Bureau of Narcotics paid a visit. Anslinger's agents handcuffed Holiday to the bed until an injunction forced them to remove the cuffs. They took a mugshot of her while in her hospital room, raided her room for drugs, and confiscated her get-well gifts. Then, they forced doctors to abruptly cut off her methadone. Going cold turkey with her litany of major health problems was too much for Lady Day to bear. On July 17, 1959, Billie Holiday was dead, and Harry Anslinger killed her. Harry Anslinger was forced to retire in 1962 due to age limits for his position, and died in 1975 at the age of 83. While Anslinger was able to get his main mark on the way out, what he could not kill was the spirit of Black Americans. Strange Fruit was one of the earliest songs of protest. It was an illustration of the horrors Black Americans faced in America for no other reason but the color of their skin. 
And while it was sung by many, none had the emotion, the pain, and the power behind it, quite like Billie Holiday. And while Ann Slinger tracked her down for years and ultimately silenced her, he could not silence the will, the fight, and the perseverance she symbolized, and her place in history as an inspiration for the civil rights movement. In the next installment of America's Drug War, how did the turbulence of the 1960s lead to a reinvigoration of the war on drugs? That next episode will be released in four weeks. We're going to skip a week in the series, but it doesn't mean we're skipping Popstar Podcast. In a couple of weeks, I'll be releasing a Halloween special on Urban Legends. It's something a little different than what we normally do, but it's still in the spirit of this podcast, and I think you'll really enjoy it. So stay tuned for that. Thank you very much for listening to Potster Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, there are more like it. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you really enjoyed it, give us five stars on your favorite podcatcher and leave a review. It's not so I can feel warm and fuzzy. It's just so that more people will be able to see Potster Podcast in search results. And I'm always tweeting. Feel free to tweet me at PotsterCast. And for the one-stop shop, go to PotsterPodcast.com. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free. I give you the incredible flying machine. Oh, my God.